What can be new or different about an anthology of the modern American short story that we haven't seen before? Well, plenty. And John Freeman, who edited the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story, ought to know. The former editor of Granta and the now editor of Freeman's cast a wonderfully wide net to call this collection. The anthology offers works by writers of color, new voices, forms, and styles. Favorite authors of classic works are included with perhaps stories not usually anthologized. The collection also boasts works of science fiction, horror, and fantasy. Fans of short fiction anthologies will love this wide-ranging collection and its diverse offerings. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to editor John Freeman about the Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story. John, I, I really believe that there are certain types of people in the world who love short stories and love short story anthologies. I think it's a particular kind of person. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and these compilations generally have an array of stories, a good variety. And the stories in this collection include stories that are different in all ways, from setting, structure, point of view, characterization, all that. Uh, but what was your guiding principle as you worked on this collection about perhaps what makes a short story, I'll say a memorable one for you and worth including in a book like this one? Well, I think we're both here because we are those people. <laughs> <laughs> can't help but um, pick up books of short stories like this to see if we've read one of them before. But I feel like the short story gets a bit of a bad rep. You know, we learn it and we are taught it in school. And we're often given stories with lessons, you know, that we're supposed to extract from those stories. And uh, a good story has many lessons, including the first story in this book, which is about school kids being taught a lesson but in fact, they, they glean another lesson from a trip to a high-end toy store in Manhattan. And they're kids from a, a, a poorer neighborhood. And the, I think the trip is meant to make them respect wealth. But in fact, it, it makes them realize that they will always be treated the way they are treated if they don't speak up for themselves. And I think, you know, in, this, in a short story form, if we reduce it to just lessons we end up with we end up with something much less mysterious and so i wanted a book of stories that felt big and as wide as america as deep with as many types of people as many backgrounds but that was also just fun to read you know that that when you got into a story you didn't want to get out of it and i think you can have all those things at the same time you know that you can reflect the country and who lives here, but you can also entertain people at the same time. Well, so you say something that reminds me about what I love about the short story, and that's that it democratized literature. I mean, at one time, that was a real selling point of the short story. I always go back to The Lonely Voice by Frank O'Connor or the essays of Charles E. May, um, they both wrote about the study of short fiction from the standpoint of, I mean, 
literary analysis and and parsing and and uh, explication, but also the the visceral prompting and prodding of these ideas of loneliness, the mysteries of humanity, um, the idea of conflict being all about loss and yearning, but also that democratization of of the short story. Um, and I kept thinking about that as I was going through the collection. I've always found so appealing this idea that a short story can carry all of that. It just seems so magical to me that it can do that. It can, and you don't have to spend 22 hours reading it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can read it. You can read the short story by Sandra Cisneros in here in about five minutes, if, if not less. You know, three. It's um, two paragraphs, and yet there's a universe in it. It's a great story of hers from a, a book of hers from the mid-1990s called uh, Salvador Later Early, and it's about a, a boy whose parents are too busy to take care of him and too busy to take care of his siblings, and he spends his time getting his brothers and sisters to and from school safely. And Cisneros is a perfect example of that kind of democratization because growing up anywhere in America, there is sometimes, if you grow up in certain ways, a feeling that elsewhere is more important, you know, that culture comes from somewhere else. I felt that way growing up in Sacramento, California. I didn't think the, 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 the elite or the things worth knowing about culture were coming from Sacramento. And that was a mistake, but that's what my high school curriculum taught me. And I think Sandra Cisneros is one of those writers who writes for all the people who feel that way, which is to say that, you know, your struggle, um, what it feels like just to get up and go to work some days, the ability to take care of family, that in and of itself can be the topic of a great work of art. And that work can speak in ways that don't need PhDs to translate, and it can move you. And, and that story of hers is immensely moving without being sentimental. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought up Sandra Cisneros. You, you say in your introduction, it would take us decades to appreciate what a time the 1980s were for writers. I was reading the canonical works in the 1980s, but I also tended to read whatever I could by Jewish writers or writers whose work featured themes. I think I was responding to themes of alienation. Um, so when I was in school, I wasn't assigned uh, works by Chicano authors. Let's say Tomas Rivera, right at that time. Sandra Cisneros' uh, House on Mango Street was published in 1984. That's the year mm -hmm. I graduated from high school. I wasn't assigned anything except the classics and the canonical works. And even when I went off to college, the same was true. And I sort of had to seek out um, other writers. And of course, by now, um, I'm able to assign the works of Sandra Cisneros to my own students and, and immerse myself in those books now. So I, I fi find that sentence from you in the introduction. It would take us decades to appreciate what a time the 1980s were for writers. It took me a little while to find my own way because it, it wasn't in the curriculum, as you, as you say. Um, and I found my way to other works that spoke to me. I mean, even the classics, Chekhov and Flaubert and others, and the Jewish writers, um, 
But yeah, that I feel the same way you did. That, and obviously, the school curriculum cannot be all things to all people. But I always wonder how different my life would have been uh, if I had been exposed to Sandra Cisneros in high school. I don't know. I think about that all the time, actually. (laughs) Well, it gives me a lot of hope that now House of Mango Street is taught by dozens, if not hundreds of schools every year. And, you know, there's another writer in here. I grew up, as I mentioned, in Sacramento, and my parents took me on a kind of directed field trip to uh, to Central California to discover and to see what had been done to Japanese Americans during the World War II internment. Otherwise, it was not in the history books I was learning uh, and I was reading from in school. You know, and and, and in school, there were, except for John Steinbeck, there were no Californians in my curriculum. You know, not not no one that looked like anyone I lived around. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, uh, Julia Atsuka wrote a great book about. Um, the the internment experience, uh, and that's being taught everywhere. And so I think, in the novel as a form, I think people have caught up a little bit more to the novel being written by the varieties of Americans who live in this, you know, in this country, mm-hmm. who, who reside here, uh, who have stories and and fates that are de- that are determined here. Uh, and with the short story, I was a bit surprised when I began putting this book together to look around at a lot of the other anthologies of around this period and to discover that, well, frankly, it it it, it looked a lot like me, you know. And, and I read because I, I want to travel. I want to be other people than me. I want to also experience the country that is the United States and all of its glory and culture and sound and beauty. And uh, for some reason, in 2020, we're still putting together anthologies that are, you know, mostly white guys. And that that, that to me seemed bizarre, uh, to put it mildly. And and to to end my point, I I don't think it needs to be that way, because the, the writers that are all around us, not just Cisneros, but Louise Erdrich, you know, Manuel Munoz, who's the last story in this book, um, Charles Johnson, Alice Walker, Jamaica Kincaid, the best writers in America come from many different places, and have many different backgrounds. Uh, and I, I wanted a short story book that, that reflected that, you know. I was so struck by that. And I, I want to ask you about your process, because here there's a story about uh, a young African-American girl here there's a story about a young Mexican-American girl. Here there's a story about a, um, a migrant worker. And here there's a story about a soldier. You know, and here there's a story about HIV. Here there's a love story. Here there's a story about Native Americans. And so it just seemed to me like, I wonder how John Freeman, <laughs> you know, what was John Freeman's um, process. So I, what was your process? I know you're such a busy person. I would imagine for a collection like this one, there was still a lot of work to do and a lot of reading to do. And I'm sure you had this compunction that you wanted to cover a lot of different subjects and a lot of different voices and spaces um, and make it m- more comprehensive than not. But that's a difficult thing. I, I think that must have been a very difficult thing. So I wonder about your process. 
It was a glorious process, to be honest, not to compliment myself, <laughs> just to, I was reading these stories during the pandemic, you know, and I, it was a hard time and it was frankly a bit frightening. Um, and I read them aloud to my partner every day. Uh, I read a few stories a day for well over a year. And so I, this had begun before the pandemic, but once the pandemic was really going and we were all locked in to sit at a table at night, not watching TV, you know, listening to a story was a magical thing. And in the beginning of putting this book together, I, I made a kind of list of, I thought these stories might go in and virtually all of them did not go in. Um, which I was re very surprised about because I, I wanted to make sure I didn't uh, confirm my own biases, if that makes any sense. And so I went back and I, I read all the stories in the, the, the other anthologies that exist uh, of this period. Um, but I also read all, all of the best American short story annuals um, of this period too, uh, to, because I figured there were probably great short stories that people don't talk about anymore simply because for whatever reason they've been forgotten. And I, I, I basically read over a thousand, I think, hmm. um, and a very small pile immediately went into a yes. You know, one of them early on was Dorothy Allison's story, hmm. River of Names. And I had forgotten that she wrote a book of short stories called Trash. Um, and I found this book, uh, this story, on my shelf. And I read it, and it was just absolutely devastating. Because it's, it's a woman telling us the story of her life to her lover. Um, and as she's telling the story, she kind of pauses to tell us, the, the listener, you know, this is what it's like to tell a story like mine when you grew up poor and, and you've you've had trauma in your past, you stop and you wonder if you're moving people enough. And it was a, a, an absolutely anguishing kind of parable of what it means to polish your pain for the entertainment of someone else, uh, which I know a lot of people are thinking about now because the, you know, so, so many people have stories of trauma, you know, and, and what does it mean to commodify that, if you will, and, mm -hmm. and, and selling it as a as a piece of art, if you will, and so that 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 process took me two years, you know, and the and the end of it, reading them aloud, narrowing it down, and then narrowing it further was was very hard. And but actually, the the design of the sort of social themes, the kind of makeup of of genders and races, it almost chose itself, you know. As in, I didn't have to step back and think, well, you know, I need more women because there are not enough women as there are men. That, you know, th this makeup sort of emerged um, simply through really trying to look at the stories that were there and say, uh, would I take any of these out to put something in? Mm -hmm. And when I got to the, the point where I thought, no, this, I, I, I won't trade any one of these stories. I thought, okay, now I'm finally done. Wow. Well, the collection begins with the 1972, The Lesson, which we mentioned earlier by Tony Cade Bambara, an oft-anthologized story, right? I mean, we, we've, see, we've come across it before in anthologies, and a few others 
uh, Stuart Dybeck's Pet Milk or Taking Care by Joy Williams, Girl by Jamaica Kincaid, uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carry. These are all stories I've read elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it is. Something about this reconstitution of them in this particular grouping in this book. I don't know if this makes any sense. I know it probably sounds odd, but... No, no, it, it makes absolute sense. That's what I yeah. think the anthologies can do, is they sort of, they reshuffle the past. Yes. You know, and I thought it was time to reshuffle the past. You know, when you put Tim O'Brien in a group of 30 other dudes, <laughs> his story ends up seeming really duty. You know, but when you when you put his story in, in a context maybe like this group, it, suddenly you, you see that, uh, that that telling a story is a way of, of measuring um, the past, of measuring sometimes pain. Mm-hmm. You know, this, that's a story about the, thing they, the things they carry, which is a great story. And I, I read that thinking this is in a lot of anthologies, but it still just absolutely bowled me over. Because it's these Marines in Vietnam, um, and he's telling their stories, but he's also pausing to kind of describe everything that's in their packs. And by virtue of telling their stories right next to telling the very kind of banal details of what they carried around, you realize that they were anything but expendable. An individual is not expendable. You know, and he, he sort of re, he, he re-gifts characters like his characters, uh, uh, the dignity of the individuality that, that belonged to them. Um, and I think that's what a great short story can do. You know, it's never abstract. It's never generalized. It's never purely representational. It is about kind of this very acute acknowledgement that, it, that an individual life matters. And so what I love, too, about this sort of this new vigor of these classic stories that I've that I've read before in this new grouping and this kind of alchemy that emerges is that I can come across um, I don't know the lesson right I can pick up an anthology and say oh this has the lesson I've read that and if I say that for 30 or 35 years and never go to reread it I've really, I've really lost that story. And mm-hmm. so to sort of come to sort of look at it and say, oh, I, yeah, I've read the things they carried. And to say that every time I encounter the story, I never reread it is such a loss. It is such a, a loss. So I, I really appreciate it that there are stories here that I haven't read. And then there are stories here that I haven't read in a long time. Um, Case in point, A Conversation with My Father, the 1972 story by Grace Paley. Just today, I I was reading a novel that's set in 1973, uh, the novel Mm -hmm. by Marissa Silver called The Mysteries. And I was thinking about uh, something that somebody asked her in an interview uh, that I watched on YouTube. And somebody said, what were you reading from 1972 or three? And she said, nothing. She said, I, I, you know, I sort of just have my own story that I want to tell. And I started to think about that. What, what, what was I reading or what, what could have, well, I was seven years old, but what, what would I have gone to, to research? <laughs> um, but there's this, this story by Grace Paley 
which is a conversation with her father about stories. And I, and I just thought, oh, I, I wish I could send that story to Marissa Silver because it might mean something to her. The story that I haven't read in years that means something so different to me today in 2021 than it meant in, say, 1985, when maybe I first read it. So there's just a very, very interesting thing. I can't even quite put my finger on it. Just this, the idea of rereading after decades, it is a totally different story. Well, stories in that way are a little bit like poems because they're short enough that you can reread them. And, you know, the optics of what we, of what we read, um, also change with how we read, you know, and, and because the, I think one of the big parts of the way we read is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, you know, and the, the, the kinds of stories I read when I was in my twenties are very different from the stories I read in my forties. And I feel, uh, well now, um, reading Susan Sontag's story, which was set during the, um, early days of the, the AIDS pandemic in, a, in New York City, you know, it feels very, very acutely relevant, that kind of fear of, of people. It, it, it's different because AIDS was almost 100% at that time of a, a death sentence. Um, still, the, the, the fear of sociability and of just getting together was, um, was very, and still is very strong, you know, and to read a story like that, it, it makes, makes you realize that we are um, so enmeshed in each other's lives and what can seem historical um, very quickly cannot be historical, you know. There's a story that I wanted to put in very badly um, by Toni Morrison, her only short story. It's called Recitalith, and it's about two girls and you learn that one is black and one is white, and they're they're being raised in a foster home, and their parents um, come, and then you leap forward a few years, and their lives have changed. And then you leap forward another bunch of years, and their lives have swapped places again, and then protests start to happen, and it divides the two girls who are now women. Uh, and reading that story. I asked if I could put it in this, and unfortunately, the, the estate said no. And I, I understand why, because it's practically a little book. Mm-hmm. But reading that story now, I thought, what a profound um, window this gives us to the way uh, the, the the necessary politics of a time and protest can also can also divide you um, in ways that you aren't divided when you're children. And you know the, the the story is so nimble. It's so it's so light. It's so easily reread. Um, the 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 angles of that history bounce off it, change every time we pick it up. And so I'm rereading a lot of these stories. Not all of them were stories I'd read before, but the ones I had had read, every single one seemed absolutely changed when I read it again to to consider it for this anthology. And I think the idea of including stories that might readily fall under the categories of sci-fi or horror or fantasy are included in the collection alongside the stories of some of the 
perhaps expected, you know, masters of the form. And I like that too, because that's, that, you know, there are people out there that would like to say that, you know, there's this ongoing debate about genre literature as if it were a lesser form versus literary fiction. Um, but I, I like this idea of this window into the now from a Stephen King or an Ursula K. Le Guin story um, within a Penguin book of the modern American short story within a collection like this. I, I think it's marvelous. I think it's necessary and important. And I think it helps us continue to have conversations about these sorts of things, not just in a metaphorical way, of course, but in a way that helps, in a way that I think makes more sense because we're so informed by literature, we're so informed by history, um, or need to be. So I appreciate the idea that you included in a collection like this stories that, you know, that might not so easily be appreciated by uh, by people who like short stories or or who might say that genre literature is is not the same as literary fiction. Oh, I'm glad you think so. I, the The American continent, our history in this country is so wild and um, brutal and strange uh, and full of wonder that to me it seems completely natural to have horror stories and, and science fiction stories. Um, I mean, I, I, I think in the future, I don't think Stephen King will be considered the American Poe of the 20th century, but I think it will be close. And if you look at the way that certain populations of the country have been treated and have had to live and how much of the country has been poor um, for decades now, especially during the period that this book falls. And that's not the topic of his story here, but it is the topic, I think, of many other stories of his. The kind of horror aesthetic makes a lot of sense, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that, there's, that there's something monstrous about life. Uh, and similarly, I think the, the writers like Ursula K. Le Guin or Ted Chang, who uh, is a wonderful short story writer, I recommend him extremely highly and I think movies are being made um, of his short stories now at the rate that they were recently of Philip K. Dick stories from the 1960s. Le Guin and Ted Chiang have a lot to say about the morality of how we occupy our environment and what that says about our time here and, and what bargains we make and who and what we're not listening to. And it's not a question of politics or shoehorning politics into a story. I think it's a question of just dealing with what life is. And when part of what our life is, is living on a planet in, in a state of danger, a state of a planet in a state of distress. And I think you have to kind of reach beyond the, the, the realm of realism just to describe what that feels like. I was looking at the... The, the stories from 1972 to 2019, the story by Manuel Munoz, uh, Anyone Can Do It. Uh, 
And I was trying to see what was reflected there in terms of us, in terms of, of all of us, our, our country and our world. Um, and I kept coming back to your introduction where you say, more than 50 years on from this period, the 1960s seem a very different era, one in which it took riots, assassinations, and televised public beatings to wake up white Americans. Towns and cities across the country fought desegregation with violence and even federal legislation couldn't end discriminatory practices. It just started a new movement from the moments of their passage, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968 met concerted pushback. Indeed, they jump-started a right-wing movement in its ascendancy today. And I, I just kept looking at that and looking at Tony Cade Bambara's The Opening Story, The Lesson, and going through um, even a story like uh, Story by Lydia Davis and uh, The Way We Live Now by Susan Santa, and just going through and ending with Manuel Munoz's story. And I thought, these stories, this book shows us the ways that we have changed and the ways that we can still hope to change. And so I'm not putting a, a, a very fine point on this, but I think about the fact that when I come to the end of the book and I close the book, that it's the story by Manuel Munoz and where I've been, all of these different journeys that I've been on with all of these characters and all of these voices. And I sort of come to this migrant worker story. And I'm the daughter of a, of a migrant worker, the granddaughter of a migrant worker. And I'm just struck by this idea of how Manuel Munoz wrote the story. Uh, you know, we sound, I think we're about the same age, roughly. And um, growing up, the way that the story of America was taught to me through the stories of America that I read was always through some filter of the American dream, you know. And it suggested that everyone was kind of reaching up and gravitating toward light. And, of course, we all want better things for those we love and to be around those we love when they're well. Uh, but in the long run, um, America can be a, quite a cruel country uh, to some degree. And the fantasy that all of us will be lifted up from our circumstances and, and achieve or be granted better lives is to some degree that. Which does not mean that living in America is only a dour, terrible, joyless experience. It is not. It is a place full of wonder and excitement and drama, um, great culture and music and fellowship and all sorts of things. But when the stories that the country tells about itself are primarily those in which a dream is achieved while many people who live within that country do not experience that per se, you have to wonder what, what is being done in the, in, the, in the telling of the story. Is it, 
is it is it giving someone hope or is it simply a kind of trickery and i i wanted when these stories came together to to have something that felt a little bit more like the life that that is lived on the ground in the country um even if it's in the imaginations of the writers who live on the ground so to speak mm -hmm. and i wanted to end with manuel's story not only because it was a, a such a fabulously crafted work of fiction but also the, to reiterate in some fundamental way that the the lives of anyone who is living in the united states is is worthy of a story you know that um and that those lives are worth representation but they're also lives that can be rendered with tenderness and that can be rescued to some degree with tenderness the main character in that story has just one sort of bad thing happen to her after another and i don't want to give away the mm -hmm. ending but there is a point at which the kindness of a stranger it doesn't erase what has happened to her but it makes some of it bearable and i think sometimes we read in order to reacquaint ourselves with the value of of tenderness you know to remind ourselves how serious the stakes are but to also remind ourselves that we have the capacity for mutual aid and and love and wonder as expressed to each other and that that is what makes living when living involves many struggles bearable and that to me is is a it's not an American dream, but it, it feels like an American story that, that I recognize because it's written in the work of the best writers I read, too. John Freeman, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, and I'm, I'm glad to meet another story nerd. <laughs> <laughs> John Freeman is the editor of The Penguin Book of the Modern American Short Story. He's the editor of Freeman's, a literary annual of new writing, and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.